Welcome, Pudding People, to another episode of Everybody Loves Pudding. I'm your host, Ken Seymour. Today, I have an amazing actor as a guest. We have the fantastic Tony Winters joining us. Thank you so much for taking your time to speak with us today. Oh, it's my pleasure, Ken. Um, I've been looking forward to this all week. I'm, I, I love pudding, especially butterscotch. That's, <laughs> it's a good choice. That's my favorite. That's my favorite. Definitely. So, you have had kind of an amazing history in the industry uh you've been on a lot of a lot of shows a lot of movies that people would be familiar with and i know there has to be just this one burning question that uh is on everybody's minds i know it's definitely on mine what was it like to work on the movie sneakers i mean because that had to have been amazing it absolutely was it absolutely was um to this day it's probably still the crown jewel of my career. You know, I only had one line in the movie. I was only on it for five days, but it was an it was a, an important five days because every actor in the movie, with the exception of Ben Kingsley, was in my scene. Yeah. Uh, Robert Redford, Sidney Poitier, Dan Aykroyd, River Phoenix, David Strathairn, Mary McDonald, they were all there, and James Earl Jones. Uh, it was, um, I remember when I got cast, I knew it was a Robert Redford film. And, you know, I've been in Hollywood for years. I, I, I was ready for Robert Redford. And when I got invited to the uh, table read, I remember I was sitting there, you know, my script open as the, as the cast was starting to arrive. And, you know, in walks Redford. And I said, okay, I was ready for that. I was ready for that. And then walks Mary McDonald. Okay. You know, in walks... Uh, Dan Aykroyd and David Strathairn and and all these people were I didn't know and then were in the film and then all of a sudden Sidney Poitier and James Earl Jones walk in together <laughs> and you gotta understand for a black man in Hollywood that was like you know celestial choir <laughs> singing and it's like oh my god two of the men that I admire more <clears throat> Then probably anyone in this this town, you know, they they're walking in like they're they're going to work at you know uh, Ford Motor Company together with their lunch buckets and they're just <laughs> chatting them. And to me, it's it's a pivotal moment, you know, and especially working with Sydney, because um, you know when I was growing up in Detroit in in the in the seventies, uh, they had what was called the four thirty movie. And the 4.30 movie would sometimes feature a certain actor for an entire week. You know, it would be Betty Davis week. It would be Paul Newman week. It would be, you know, Joan Crawford week, what have you. And there would be a Sidney Poitier week. And I would and, and I would see In the Heat of the Night, you know, um, The Lilies of the Field. And, 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 and they call me Mr. Tibbs and on and on and on. And to suddenly be working with Sidney Poitier was certainly one of life's full circle moments. And, and, and the film itself, the film itself is, and its subject matter is still very poignant today. You know, he who controls the information uh, rules and that at, at the heart of the movie, that's, that's really what it was about. And uh, so it's considered, you know, a modern classic. And yeah. here we are 30 years later and people are still talking about it and, and are still moved by it. And, uh, and I'm, I'm glad to have been a fly on the wall <laughs> for 
for in that very, very special movie. Um, and Sidney Poitier just has this ability to, to, and this is the thing that kind of surprised me when I watched the film in the first place, because I'm thinking, oh, kind of funny spy thing, that'd be great, but a lot of his roles have this kind of, um, just this quiet intensity that he can bring to whatever role. And it's, and it's just, it's like, well, if he's in this, I, I don't remember him being in a lot of like buddy cop style of films. There's, there's going right. to be something to this that I'm not seeing it. And like you said, it's just, it's always stuck with me as one of my favorites. We were lucky enough to talk with Steven Tobolowsky uh, a number of years ago. And, uh, you know, he still gets people that like you're saying, stop him and talk to him about that particular film. And it's just, it's kind of fantastic. So I had I had to throw that out there. It's like, oh, I remember exactly which part you had in that in that scene because I know that film so well. Oh wow, man. yeah. Uh, and it, just as a footnote, man, um, I was going through some old photographs, and I came across a picture of Ackroyd, Straight There, River Phoenix, and myself. And uh, I, I, I was in the habit of carrying a camera. This was before the camera phone, well before the camera phone. Uh, I, I would grab, you know, one of those disposable cameras and take them to set with, with me. And, you know, if, if the moment presented itself, I would ask the star, for, you know, to get a picture with. And um, so I think I was approaching my last day on the set and I asked River, no, no. I, I said, River, can I get a picture with you? He said, yeah, absolutely. Cause we had kind of bonded. And and he uh, he said, "Do you want the rest of the guys?" I said, "Yeah," but they were like, <laughs> "I I just wasn't that actor who ran up and started you know introducing myself and trying to warm up to people." And he went and got all those guys together for this photo, and we 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 snapped the picture, and I kind of forgotten about it, and I came across it recently. And I said, you know what, I'm, I'm going to scan this and post it on my Instagram page. And I wrote a little story about how River had gotten these guys together for the, for the photo for me. I was overwhelmed. I had no idea that there was a world of, a galaxy, I should say, of River Phoenix fans oh, yeah. out there around the world who converged on this picture flooded my inbox with what do you remember about him what was he like and and i, I, I was like well he was a great kid he was he was wonderful he was very sweet to me we spent a lot of time talking i remember my first day on the film you know um my my van ride to set was with him he had obviously been up all night partying but that's his business right he was grown uh, but yeah, man, uh, that's, that was, uh, that was my experience after posting that, that photo that, oh, wow. who knew? Well, I mean, for a lot of the time, some, some of the people that are with us for the shortest amounts of time sometimes have the biggest impacts. I mean, you worked uh, briefly with another individual that I feel could have been in that same exact scenario if he had had just a little bit more time. And that was Jonathan Brandis because you were in an episode of Sequest twenty thirty two. Yes. Wow. <laughs> I was like, Where's he going with this? Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I mean, um, it's he's he's another individual I talk about in the same kind of breath uh, as yeah. like man, th this kid had such talent, and it was you know just an unfortunate, an unfortunate situation. Yeah, he did. He's in that great pantheon with Marilyn Monroe and James Dean and Tupac Shakur, all these people who were taken away, you know, um, before their time. And um, that's a 
there's a very special place in, in heaven, I like to believe, for uh, those individuals. They burn so bright. Uh, Michael Jackson, you know, let's not even get into the rock stars that, yeah. that burn so brightly that, you know, they're only here for a short time. So what got you into the industry to begin with? I mean, everybody enters it in a different way. I've, I've mentioned this several times. Some people grew up in, in theater and grew up in this area. Some people got to it later in life. Some people, it was a college experience. Oh, this is, I never realized it could be like this. How, how did the acting bug bite you to begin with? Well, I have to be honest and say that I don't ever remember not wanting to be an actor. Even from the time I was a little kid growing up in Detroit, I had never done, I wasn't one of those theater camp kids or uh, we didn't even have drama programs in, in, in my schools. I just would watch television. I'd go to the movies and you got to understand in, in, the, in the era in which I grew up, there was on television, there was That's My Mama, there was Good Times, there was Sanford and Son uh, and on and on and on. So, I saw the Jeffersons, I saw black people on television. At, uh, at the same time, there was the, the black exploitation films of, of the 70s. There was Shaft, Superfly, you know, uh, Hammer and Slaughter and those kinds of things. And my friends and I, we would catch the bus downtown Detroit and we go uh, see a triple bill of black exploitation films and Kung Fu movies. And, and everybody likes movies. Everybody likes television. But I was on a different level. I wanted to be in those movies. I wanted to be on television. I wanted to be one of those guys. And I, I, I would think it was always so interesting to see an actor play one role on a television show when I was a kid and then see him in a completely different role on another show. I said, that's the guy who was just on, you know, uh, Mannix. Right, right. <laughs> you know? And now he's on Barnaby Jones, you know. I, I kind of want to do that. I don't know how you do it, but that's what I want to do. And uh, so the story is kind of long, but I'll try and uh, nutshell it. Between my junior and senior year in high school, my mom sent my younger brother and I to San Diego, California, to spend the summer with my dad. That's where he, they were divorced, and that's where my dad was living at the time. And he was living with my aunt and uncle, his brother and his brother's wife and their kids who were about our age. And my aunt, who I'm still very close to to this day, my aunt Marva in San Diego, she just packed us up in, in her old beat up Cadillac and just showed us Southern California. I mean, I saw the Pacific Ocean for the first time, palm trees, you know, clear blue skies. And I'm like, you've got to be kidding me. This is actually, <laughs> there's places in this country where you can live and it doesn't snow, you know? <laughs> and uh, she took us to Hollywood. <laughs> I saw Grauman's Chinese Theater for the first time, you know, and I had seen that. I had seen it depicted on on I Love Lucy, and, and right. you know, so the, the 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 place was becoming real. I remember we were driving up what I know to be Gower Street now, and on Gower, you're passing Paramount Studios, and they have all the marquees of the uh, television shows that are being taped, and we passed one that said Happy Days, which I don't know how old you are, but that was a huge, huge right. time of my youth. And uh, then we go on to take the Universal Studios tour. And I remember the, the tram having to stop because they were actually shooting a, a television show on the lot and we had to be quiet. And I was like, ah, oh, this is real. <laughs> this is like in Detroit, we make cars and trucks and tires. But in Hollywood, they make movies and TV shows and music. And I said, I don't know how I'm going to get here, 
but I'm going to come here. <laughs> and I did. It was six years later, and I became a tour guide at Universal Studios. Really? I bet. And I worked there for two years. I bet that had to have been kind of surreal uh, to, to kind of be right next to it every day. Well, I, I didn't give you all the details, but yeah, uh, I went to San Diego after high school and I, I went to college and I started studying theater there. So I had done a lot of acting by the time I got to Hollywood in, in the mid 80s. And yeah, it was it was very surreal. You know, uh, the tram is going around the lot. You know, you see James Garner, you see, you know, Robert Blake, you, you see, you know, Sherman Hemsley and and and, and well, Scott Bayo, you know, who's doing Charles in charge. Yeah. And, uh, they were doing the facts of life at the time. Uh, uh, you know, so you'd see the girls from facts of life walking around. And uh, as a tour guide, we were uh, we were given access to. The film sets. We just had to clear it with our supervisor, and he would and, and he would call the AD, and we would be allowed to go now and watch filming, and that was really exciting for me. That that has you to know? be cool. It is and here's 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 something I always think about when trying to come at from from your perspective as as an actor. I, I've mm -hmm. I've had some limited experience in in stage, nothing in, in anything recorded, but. A lot of the stuff that I dealt with was very bare bones, but on a, a TV set or on a movie set, having everything be so meticulously constructed, what is that kind of feeling? Even even though you got tape and some spots to, to tell you where to go, how, it's, how's that it's affect absolutely, you? It was, it was mind-boggling in my early years here. Uh, I, I'll tell you another story. Uh, I was my first job before the tour guide job. I worked at a bookstore in Studio City for a couple of months prior to getting the job at Universal. And uh, and right across the street was CBS Studio Center, where they were doing St. Elsewhere and Hill Street Blues and shows of that nature. So one day I get to talking with this customer in the store and he told me he was the best boy on a set of Hill Street Blues. And he said, uh, he said, I said, oh, man, are you kidding? That's my, I said, that's my favorite television show, man. He said, well, why don't you come over and visit the set? I said, I said, okay. I said, well, what about when I get to the front gate at, at the studio? He said, just, just look like you know where you're going. This was before 9-11, obviously. Right. <laughs> it's completely changed now. Yeah. Now you have to give me your firstborn to get on this, onto the studio lot. But anyway, so I walked over to the studio after I got off work. He gave me the number of the soundstage. And when I got to the front gate, I just walked like I knew where I was going. I found the soundstage and I walked in. And man, I got to tell you, it was like I was walking into a real police station. I mean, you walk down one hallway and into an office and, you know, there's file cabinets with crap, you know, phones and, and, and pictures on the wall. And just the attention to detail was mind blowing, especially for a guy who had done, you know, equity waiver theater and you, you barely had a table and chair, <laughs> you know, here's where no expense was spared. And it, it was um, pretty mind blowing. And I remember I took a, a seat over in the corner, you know, I just wanted to watch. And uh, they were filming a scene with uh, Daniel J. Trevanti and Veronica Hamill uh, watching the execution of a prisoner. Ooh. And uh, and I, I was just sitting there awestruck. And uh, at some point, there's a break in filming and Daniel, Daniel J. Trevanti walks over to me and he says, and I'm sitting in the chair and he's standing right in front of me. He says, who are you? And I'm like, 
<laughs> I'm Tony. <laughs> he says, did you sneak in here, Tony? I said, well, yeah, kind of, but I'm here at the invitation of a crew member. He said, um, I said, okay. He says, uh, you know, who are you? What do you do? I said, well, I want to act. He said, oh, really? He says, uh, he says, Veronica, come here. <laughs> so Veronica Howell walks over. Now, bear in mind, I'm a kid, 23 years old. I work across the street at a bookstore. <laughs> you know, I make four bucks an hour. And all of a sudden, Daniel J. Trevanti and Veronica Hamill are standing in front of there, the two biggest stars on television at the time. Man. And I'm I'm, and I've seen had seen every episode of Hill Street Blues before the advent of the the VCR, so you know I had to be there to watch it. Right. And I'm just awestruck. And they were so nice to me. They talked to me, and I I I, I just said, this is this is I am definitely in my. This is where I'm supposed to be. This is what I'm supposed to be pursuing. I'm sorry, that was a long story, but hey, that's what I, we love. I, yeah, yeah. They were they were very very sweet to me. Uh. The set of Hill Street Blues was amazing. And then you you leave that soundstage and you walk across the lot and the entire first three stories of St. Allegis, which was the hospital Ooh. for St. Elsewhere, was constructed in front of a soundstage. It looked like a freaking hospital. <laughs> you know, the, and I, again, the attention to detail was just mind blowing that uh, they're able to accomplish here in Hollywood. Well, and, and it's a. Uh, it's this kind of it's this kind of dedication that always that that refreshes me at least mentally. Kind of seeing the the effort that every every person often puts into the the creation of these stories to help kind of bring us a message or to bring us uh, the ability to get away from something for a little while. It's just it's kind of beautiful. Let me share one more with you. After I stopped working at the bookstore, I started training to be a tour guide at Universal, and while I was training. They were shooting Back to the Future. Oh man! On the back lot, the entire courthouse square area was dressed as Hill Valley. I mean, it was the 1950s. You you walk onto the street, and the cars and the the signage and and all of the extras were dressed in 1950s gear. It was it was it was amazing. That's yeah, crazy. Oh, that was my introduction to Hollywood. <laughs> <laughs> the set of Back to the Future. Well, and and you know that's. That's kind of that's kind of the love that that you can sometimes feel when when you see those productions. Now you've had experience not only with the acting side, you've created um, uh, uh, multiple different things. You had um, was it uh, Tatiana and Section Eight? Tatiana, yes. Yeah. Tell me a little uh, bit about that. Well. Uh... It was a confluence of, a, of a, a number of different influences, but in short, I had kind of fallen in love with independent film and was kind of getting bored with what was being offered me in Hollywood. And I wanted my chance to be a romantic lead. Well, but I didn't have, I didn't have a story. I didn't have an idea. So uh, my mother was retiring at the time from her job as a uh, court clerk in downtown Detroit. And I called up a lady friend of mine that, that I used to see whenever I was in town in Detroit and asked her if she would attend my mother's retirement party with me. And she told me no, that she was already planning to attend. And there was an, another guy who happened to be a professional athlete. I think he played for the Lions. Uh, he was going to attend with her. So 
okay. So I'm a little outdone at this point. So I asked a young lady that uh, I was seeing here in Los Angeles if she did if she fly home to Detroit with me and attend this this affair. And she said, absolutely. And plus she was a singer. And I asked her if she would perform to show up the the lion's guy. Uh (laughs) (laughs) And she, she, uh, she agreed to do a song at my mom's uh, retirement party. And I got to tell you from the moment we boarded the plane, this woman, she went crazy. She got in fights with the stewardess. We arrived in Detroit. She insulted members of my family. She started making outrageous demands about her place on the on the uh, on on the uh, on the on the list of speakers and performers. She was just totally out of pocket. But anyway, when I got back to LA, I said I've just lived a romantic comedy, <laughs> and I, I I wrote it basically almost scene for scene. Uh, you know, that, that I had experienced. And, um, I, in short, I, I raised $50,000. I didn't have much money and my friends and I, we shot it. I got a group of my friends together and we made the movie, uh, even shooting some scenes in Detroit on location in Detroit. (laughs) And, uh, when it it premiered at the Pan-African Film Festival and we won the audience favorite award, and my mind was blown because I had always thought of myself simply as an actor. So ever since that time, I had never been able to think of myself solely as an actor anymore. I was now a writer and a producer. I didn't direct it. I wrote it and produced it. And then um, I, I had, and then I just went about writing every idea that I had had in my head about every uh, film or, or play that I wanted to be a part of. And one of them was uh, called Section 8 which was based on my experience living with my father when I moved to San Diego after high school and living and moving in with him and his girlfriend and some of the conflicts that ensued. So anyway, I I, I wrote that and um, I produced it as a stage play. And uh, while the theater was dark, we came in with the camera crew and we shot it on the actual set that we used in the theater. Oh, cool. That was kind of my business model. And it worked. And it won um, Best Feature Film at the Arizona Black Film Festival. At Arizona Black Film Showcase. Let me get the title right. So, uh, yeah, yeah. And what you see behind me over my shoulder here is is from a play, which was the third thing that I produced, called uh, The Devil and Billy Markham, which was a one-man show. Uh, which was quite a challenge. Yeah, I was going to say, that's a lot and, of pressure uh, right there. Well, you know, I didn't put that on myself. I It took me a year to learn all the dialogue. I didn't write it. It was written by Shel Silverstein. And um, I just went about learning it. It was it came at a very dark time in my life. It was post-divorce. And, um, you know, I sold my house. And, you know, my family was breaking up and everything. So it was, it was a very dark time. I wasn't really booking anything in, in terms of jobs. And so a friend of mine suggested I needed to do a one man show and theater had always been to me, you know, an ensemble uh, uh, experience. You know, I had done I started out doing Tennessee Williams and 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 that sort of thing. So I was used to a bunch of actors on stage with me. So I said, I'm going to do theater. I'm going to be the only guy on stage. And uh, but anyway, I wrapped my head around it and it took me a year to learn the entire piece. And we opened in 2014 at a small theater here in Los Angeles. And uh, 
I did. In fact, I think I bought this shirt for that show because I played, it was the Devil and Billy Markham and I played the storyteller. So anyway, it was a wonderful experience. Uh, you can find it online on my, on my, uh, on my YouTube page uh-huh. called uh, Tony Winters TV. Excellent. So yeah. one of the things that I thought about when I saw this is, okay, so he's, he's got this, this work that he's created and it is being, uh, he's producing it and everything. But as you mentioned, you didn't direct it. So immediately my thought process is like, well, that doesn't, a lot of times when you're the, the originator and you have that kind of deep investment in something, it seems like it might be difficult to give that control over to another individual. How does that dynamic work when you get somebody else to direct this thing that you've created? Well, um, firstly, uh, with Tatiana, uh, my friend Tom Steinhoff uh, directed it, who was one of my one of the first guys I met. He was a tour guide with me at Universal uh, in Los Angeles. And uh, Tom, firstly, knew more about film than anybody I knew. Now, I knew acting. And I knew writing, but I didn't know how to put a camera in front of people and, you know, uh, and film it. And Tom did. So I asked him if he would direct it. And he did. And plus, we were good enough friends who I knew that I still could exercise, you know, a degree of control over the finished product. But uh, one of the things, you know, you learn as a as a as a as a as a screen actor, as a film artist, that it is a collaborative effort that you have to allow all these different disciplines and all these different departments to be able to contribute to the whole. So um, that was the story with that. And uh, and plus, I I wanted that third eye. I wanted that third. I wanted somebody to be able to say, Tony, this isn't working. And, you know, I didn't want somebody to just rubber stamp anything I wanted to do. I wanted a guy who could say, you know what? We got to cut the scene here or we got to lose this bit of dialogue. Uh, we don't need this scene. Uh, we got to add this. I needed somebody who could talk turkey to me. And Tom was that guy. And on section eight, my friend Carl directed, Carl Gilliard, who was probably my closest Hollywood collaborator. And um, and it was it was basically the same thing. You know, he, Tom and I are all old, old friends. And um, and Carl, I just thought was the right choice. And it turned out that he was. That's got to be very pleasing to be able to have that kind of uh, that kind of an interaction with the people that 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 make everything when it goes smoothly um nobody said it went smoothly (laughs) (laughs) i was trying to figure out like how do i ask that (laughs) there there are always bumps in the road and and things take always take longer than you budgeted for or uh you know that you planned for um but you know you, you do your best with what you have and you get it done. Yeah. So what is maybe a, if somebody were to see your group of work, because a lot of times when we, when we look up stuff as uh, being on this side of uh, the viewer side of things, you know, we can look up things on Wikipedia and IMDB and we'll see certain right. things. But a lot of the time, if, if we want to know more about the stage experience of somebody, we don't always have as good of a resource to, to kind of see that. So a question I like to ask for somebody that's been in a lot of television and movies is what is maybe one of your favorite stage plays that you have been involved with? Wow. I, you know, I, I was really blessed when I got to San Diego, uh, 
my college theater had a wonderful program headed by a man named Lyman Seville. Uh, but there was also at the same time a very uh, a, a thriving African-American uh, theater community in San Diego. Uh, additionally, there was the Old Globe Theater, which is world renowned and the San Diego Rep. Uh, but anyway, um, my first production called was Cat on a Hot Tin Roof. I mentioned Tennessee Williams. Right. I did the first, to our knowledge, we did the first all black production of, of Cat on a Hot Tin Roof. Huh. Uh, yeah. And I played Brick. And um, my very dear friend, uh, Sherlyn Hicks, played Maggie the Cat. And we only had to change a couple of lines. We only had to change a couple of lines in order to tell the story, you know, about black people owning, what was it, 50,000 acres of the richest land this side of right. uh, Mississippi. Uh, and I think there was also a, uh, one of the reviewers caught that uh, if there were black people in Mississippi in the 1950s who had this much land and money, their children certainly didn't go to Ole Miss. <laughs> and, uh, but uh, aside from that, um, uh, I, I would say that was, even though it was one of my first productions, Cat on a Hot Tin Roof has a very, still has a very special place in my heart. Uh, we did it. We did an excellent production. If I'm, if, if, if I can be so bold, uh, as to characterize my own, my own production. Uh, also did a production of um, the Lilies of the Field. Uh, in fact, that was my last show at the Coronado Playhouse in San Diego. Uh, that was a beautiful, beautiful production in which I played the Sidney Poitier role. Yeah. Uh, um, and uh, gosh, what other plays what were standouts in my, uh, I'd have to say also at the Coronado Playhouse, I had a very tiny role in a production of One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Oh, that would have been fun. Yeah, yeah I played one of the aides, one of the uh, orderlies, Aide Williams, as, as I recall. Uh, that was a ball. Um I did some really wonderful theater work in San Diego, in college and out, outside. Uh, and uh, I miss those days. I miss those days because we weren't making any money. <clears throat> so it was never about a paycheck or billing or anything like that. It was like, oh, I just want to do this play because I, I love doing theater. Right. And um, yeah, yeah. Does that answer your question? I do believe that it does. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it, it, the 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 differences between theater and television and film are are always interesting to see see the um, see an actor transition from one medium to the other and sometimes their approach to how they do their roles changes and sometimes they don't so an example that I give is like if you see Matthew Broderick perform on stage versus how he performs on a movie, it's very similar. He has a, a similar presence, similar projection. Whereas when you're talking about, uh, talking about some of the other actors, like um, I'm trying to think of a good example, but sometimes it's a drastically different, a drastically different approach. Do you find yourself when you're uh, going between the two mediums, changing the way that you approach a role, or do you tend to try and have uh, uh, more con more consistency between the two approaches? Well, the internal approach is always the same. You know, the intellectual approach uh, to the role is always the same. You know, you have to 
understand the character emotionally, uh, understand him physically, uh, uh, where he's where he's coming from and where he's going. You know, every 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 scene has a starting place for your character and 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 what he what was happening just before the cameras rolled, uh, just before this scene happened, and where is he going when he walk when he exits it exits out of the room. You know what I mean? Right. So uh, all those kinds of things that you learn in acting 101 uh, are put to use, whether you're acting on the stage or, or acting on camera. So the, the approach is never the same. Uh, I find, and I can only speak for myself, is the difference being in the execution of the character. You know, because in the theater, you have to speak to the 25th or the 50th row right. or to the balcony, you know, whereas... In in, in 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 film acting, you know the 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 camera lens is your audience, and you're only speaking to that lens. So you needn't project out. There are no you know uh, 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 large gestures that are required. You know, just the raising of an eyebrow. Um, you know, the, the 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 lowering of a voice um, or the raising of a voice are are all that's needed to make the same points. So just the execution is different. What happens internally is absolutely the same thing. That's uh, that was kind of what I was uh that was kind of what I was wondering because it it seems like you'd have so much more flexibility in in being able to have that proximity uh, of the of the recording devices that are going to be able to pick up so much more. And it really is important to be able to pick up as much as you can and sometimes social media is the best way to do that and we're going to tell you about that right now hey there pudding people don't forget to check us out on our social media accounts so you can keep apprised of everything that we do any time of the day richard you're most on instagram right on the gram gram yes and what are we best known on instagram as pudding guys Easy enough. In fact, that's also what we're known as on Facebook. Now, I'd say we're on Instagram just a little more than we are on Facebook. You might get the occasional update there. We are most active on Twitter, where we are at Real Pudding Guys. Uh, we will give you updates about the next episode that's going to be coming at the end of the week, when it's released, any other little updates to the Ultimate Comic Movie Database or the Pop Culture Death Counts will also be there. Um, now... Our most exciting changes are going to be coming up soon. We're going to have a new website called Fate, the film and television engine. We're getting close to doing the beta for that. We're still working on the alpha side. We'll be doing a little closed beta and inviting a handful of people into this. I tell you what, it's going to be really, really cool when it releases. Now, you'll be able to also hear about that on our Patreon page. What are we on Patreon, Richard? Pudding guys. Pretty easy. Now, right now, it's very easy to support us. How much does it cost, Richard? It's $1 per month. Per month. Not per day. Per month. <laughs> yes. $12 <laughs> for a year. Yeah. Uh, that's really not much to help support us as we release new content, as we get better equipment to release the content into. And when the Fate engine comes out, it will have its own cost, and we're going to make it very affordable for everyone to be involved with this. And it's going to be so cool. I can't wait for you all to hear about it. 
very informative as always. Uh, <laughs> back to the back to the important stuff now. Um, now we, we've talked a little bit about stage and screen. You have some really particularly interesting stuff coming up. Um, you've got a couple productions that are just right around the corner. One of which is the named Yellow Jacket. Correct. Yes. Now it's going to be on Showtime, was it? Showtime, November 14th. I'm in the pilot episode. Um, it's, 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 it's an interesting project in that it, it, um, it's about a high school girls soccer team. And, um, and the a championship girls soccer team. And they're on their way to play in a tournament. And they're playing crashes. And they're, they they crash in the Canadian wilderness, and uh, those who survive are left to their own devices to uh, survive in the wilderness. And then, uh, so they become these warring factions, almost like uh, uh, you Lord know, of the flies. The, the Lord of the Flies. Thank yeah. you. And um, but then they're rescued and brought back to civilization. So uh, you know, you have your adult cast, you have them as adults, and you have the girls as teens. So you have them 25 years apart. Wow. Uh, I, play, I play their high school principal. So you visit me in both 1995 and in the present day. So I had to age or de-age. <laughs> I was wondering I about look that. At it. <laughs> are they, I was going to say, are they going to be using some CGI on you on this? Is, are we going to uh, see? No. <laughs> no. It's all in the makeup chair. All the makeup. Oh, that's, that's always the best. Uh, that, some of those makeup... Um, preparations i know can take just a little bit of time how long did it take to to try and make you look the appropriate age for this film um you know what i I did i i lost my mustache for the younger man because we shot the old older tony first so i i kept the mustache for the older scene and then as for the younger guy, I, I lost it. And they gave me a hair piece, you know, where my hair is a lot more thicker and more color in it. And uh, so that was that was kind of how, how, how we did it. And then the makeup wasn't that extensive. They didn't put a bunch of lines and wrinkles in my face. We didn't do all that, you know, because I'm supposed to be the age I am now oh, okay. uh, at, in the present day. Okay. And I was supposed to be, you know, 25 years younger. See, I thought I thought you're going to have a lot of fun there. They're going to have it's like, okay, we're going to be adding the, oh. these pieces, and there's going to be some glue, and you can't touch it, and probably shouldn't eat while you do this. <laughs> well, you know, I did one of those. Um, digressing for a moment, I did a film called um, The Crazies right. with Tim Oliphant, and I play a priest who gets attacked by one of the crazies, and so Tim finds me on a gurney underneath a, a, a sheet. And then when he pulls away the sheet, that's when all the prosthetics uh, were implemented that, that, that I had to, I had to get it fitted for. My mouth was sewn shut. My eyes were sewn shut. It's, it's a very riveting scene. You should see it. It's on, it's on again on my YouTube page yeah. under uh, Tony Winters TV. That's actually a fun little movie. Uh, horror horror oh, movies can be a lot. Yes. Uh, I, I'm a, I'm a fan of most movies. Uh, uh, oh, okay. Even if my ratings don't always reflect as such, <laughs> it's always a, an appreciation no matter what. And, and a good horror film that takes just a slight different, and because there's only so many monsters and, and so many yeah. scenarios and just taking that and just, just tweaking it in just one little way. Sometimes that's all that's necessary to make it really interesting. And that was a fun one. Um, now you get to work with Tim again, 
coming up, right? Yes. Uh, Tim is one of the stars of National Champions, which uh, is a film I did uh, actually earlier this year. Um, uh, uh, during the pandemic, we shot down in New Orleans. Uh, and, and Tim is uh, one of the stars of the film. Uh, National Champions opens November Thanksgiving weekend, November 24th. And it's about a college quarterback who ignites a player strike on the eve of the big game. And it stars J.K. Simmons, uh, who you will remember from Whiplash, Oscar, oh, yeah. uh, Academy Award winner J.K. Simmons, Uzo Aduba, who many will re- know as three-time Emmy winner from uh, Orange is the New Black, and uh, Tim Blake Nelson, Corn Brothers' favorite Tim Blake Nelson, who was one of my favorites. That's who I was blown away by meeting, yeah. uh, Tim Blake. Uh, also, Christian uh, Chenoweth, uh, David awesome. Keckner. David Keckner became a good buddy of mine on, on, on this film. And uh, uh, Lil Rel Lowry. Um, Jeffrey Donovan. Really, I'm sorry? Jeffrey Donovan's in there. Jeffrey Donovan. Right. Most of my scenes are with Jeffrey. Uh, uh, he's a wonderful actor. And uh, anyway, I had a great time. But the the director, the director on this film, Rick Roman Waugh, right. is a beast, man. Let me tell you, this guy, you know, I've always kind of held that the director has to be the smartest guy in the room. He was always the smartest guy in the room. He knew he could speak to you at length about your character better than you could. And I, I do my homework, man. I mean, I do, I do, uh, you know, a, a background on the character, and you know, I come up with a new walk, and I, I, I really do, I really do a lot of extensive work that I used to do in the theater. And uh, anyway, Rick could talk to you about your character at length. He understood your characters place in the story, your motivations, you know, uh, uh, where you're going, what, what, what you're doing in the scene and why you're in the scene. Uh, and then he could turn on a dime and, and, and talk to the director of photography about the lens we're going to use to cover this scene or the sound guy or the, or the gaffer, how exactly we want to light it. He was, he's amazing. I, I don't think I've ever worked with a director who was as, as fluid or as fluent, I should say, in both areas of filmmaking you know as 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 tuned into the performances as he is the technical aspects of filmmaking rick roman Waugh, man he he's he's the man well and he started in stunts really right yes i mean he had just a, he was in just a ton of films doing some ridiculous stunts because i mean it's a lot of action a lot of sci-fi and and then mm-hmm. seeing that switch over to a director you don't see that real often no. And I wonder if that's kind of kind of what it is. Just like, okay, it's time not to take a beating anymore to, to kind of. But when you get it, when you get a chance to meet him and see how brilliant he is, you'll you'll understand that there's there's a reason he's in the position he's in today. You know, there's there's a reason for it is because he's just the smartest guy in the freaking room, man. So, are you a sports fan yourself? Yes. So that this is uh, this subject matter is really pertinent to what's going on in sports today. How does this kind of affect you? Yeah, it's, it's part of the national conversation. And, and I got to tell you, my, my personal jury was out on this subject. I, I hadn't, I hadn't decided whether or not I thought it was a good idea for college athletes to be paid. You know, um, 
after after working on this film, I've come to a conclusion, which I'll keep to myself because I don't want to. I, I don't want to. I don't want to say how I personally feel. I don't want people to go and say, "Oh, you know, this is contradicting how he really feels about this subject." You know, right, so right. I don't. I don't want to put my personal viewpoint out there until after the film has been released for a while. Well, it's probably um, just as well. It's, it's let let the piece speak for itself, and uh... yeah. But it, it, it certainly opened up my mind to uh, to the arguments on both sides uh, of the issue. Now, do you tend to be more of a uh, a college sports guy, or are you more of a professional? What's what's your area that that attracts your attention? More of a professional sports, and and here in Los Angeles, you know, uh, I love the Rams have come back to L.A. and and the Rams this season drafted my quarterback from my. Detroit Lions, Matt Stafford, uh, and my my my. So my uh, Rams are four and one, and my Lions are zero and five, which is pretty sad. So the team of my youth, the team of my hometown, is 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 sorry every year, and I, I hate to admit it, but it, it's it's God's honest truth. It happens and, a lot, unfortunately. Yeah, and, and the town and, and my adopted hometown of Los Angeles. You know, it's here we expect our teams to win and they do, <laughs> you know, the Lakers are always in the hunt. The Dodgers are, are, are one last night, you know? Uh, so it's the series is now uh, three. No, I'm sorry. Three, two uh, Atlanta. So, uh, you know, uh, so I'm a big Dodger fan. And when I realized that I was living in the town uh, with the, with, and our, our team was the Dodgers, that team that brought Jackie Robinson, into you know major league baseball that broke the color line was my local team i was able to give up my detroit line uh, my detroit tigers and embrace my <laughs> los angeles dodgers so you know and 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 it just as a footnote my dad played in the negro leagues oh. for the kansas city monarchs which was robinson's old team that's cool what yeah. position he played he was a second baseman he played multiple positions but that was his favorite that's cool. Yeah. I mean, there's such there's such a rich history with with sports, and and we were talking about this just a little bit before we started. But mm-hmm. w- the way that a film can kind of create this romantic impression of of sports, do you, what is it about a film that can kind of bring it to a level that you don't always see when you're just seeing it go from day to day? Well, I think a film has the luxury of, of, of exploring the characters and exploring a story behind the actual game. You know, when you turn on your, your, your local sports teams, wherever you may happen to live, you don't know what's going on with these players at home. You know, you don't know what's going on between them and, and, and the front office uh, of the franchise. You have no idea that, but uh, films are able to take you behind the scenes. Uh, like Robert Redford in The Rookie, I believe. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, Kevin Costner in uh, Bull Durham. Mm-hmm. And there's been some wonderful, wonderful sports films made throughout the years. Well, and they're, and they're getting to a point now. I mean, there's there's always been, you know, it's the final game or this is uh, X players last season. They're trying to hang on. There's been a lot of that. But in, mm-hmm. in recent years, it seems like they're able to peel back 
just a little bit of, of the veil and show some of the, the behind the scenes and still even be able to add that kind of drama and that kind of impact to other things like Moneyball, for example. You took the words right out of my, that was going to be my next example with Brad Pitt. Yeah. And and show how some of these decisions get made. Yeah. You know, even even um, taking it into the realm of reality television, taking the conversation into the realm of reality television, hard knocks right. on HBO. I'm, I'm 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 glued to that that show every every season. You know, I love watching these young guys. Uh, and learning about their families and and their their struggle to make the team, and 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 then when I watch them play in regular season games, I'm like, I know that guy. <laughs> I really don't know if it's Adam, but I know that guy. I know I know his mom and his dad, and I know his story, and it, it and it kind of humanizes right. uh, the players, and and it makes it relatable. It creates so, a connection uh, where you wouldn't is, have it. Story is always the key. It's always about the story. Now, a lot of my stories have more to do with food, if you couldn't tell by the title of the show. Uh, so <laughs> so we always uh, talk just a little bit about food because that's something that kind of connects us all. Uh, okay. Being on the West Coast, uh, are, are you a pizza guy at all? Sure. If you, What is your absolute favorite style of pizza? Or is there a place that you know it's like, I can go to this place and this, this place gives me the most fantastic pizza every single time I go? Absolutely. Absolutely. There's a small chain here in Los Angeles called Numero Uno. They have a pizza. It's it's a uh, thick crust pizza, and it's called the Slaughterhouse Five. <laughs> nice, <laughs> dude. I'm telling you, it'll make you want to slap your mother. Uh, <laughs> taste taste just like Kurt Vonnegut. <laughs> Oh, it's, it's they, hopefully not, but it, it is absolutely delicious. Uh, that's that's my favorite LA pizza. Though I there's also a place here, not far from me in um, in Studio City called Maselli's. Now, oddly, Maselli's is on Ventura Coenga Boulevard, and it's a um, um, what do you call the restaurants where, where the waiters sing? And and there's there are restaurants where the waiters sing. Waiters, yeah, they have singing waiters there. <laughs> that's awesome. Anyway. They make a great freaking pizza. It, uh, I had like a meat lovers there. I'm a total carnivore. Nice. It was absolutely delicious. But if you're in L.A., you want some good pizza, the Slaughterhouse Five at Numero Uno. I will definitely have to keep that one in mind. Um, we also like to go into the realm of fantasy. A lot of our podcast has to do with um, pop culture, especially where it intersects with comics and comic books. So we talk a lot about uh, comic book television and movies and things like that. Are you a comic book fan at all? I certainly was as a kid. Uh, and I, I've seen some of the uh, superhero um, films that, that have been produced in recent years. I think Robert Downey Jr. is brilliant as Tony Stark, yeah. which was my favorite superhero when I was a kid. Plus his name was Tony. Right. So all of my friends... At the time, uh, these were just cartoons. We couldn't even envision them making live-action films out of these characters with their superpowers. But you know, one of my friends became Spider-Man. That was Kevin, and my friend Ollie. He was Submariner, and I was Tony Stark, Iron Man. Nice. Tony Stark makes you feel he's the coolest cat with the heart of steel. <laughs> I still remember the song. That's awesome. <laughs> Something today's generation really lacks, man. They don't get great 
television show songs. But anyway, I'm 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 out in the out, out in the There weeds. are some there are some exceptions. I mean there there've been some there have been some directors that have um at least for an episode taken the the chance on it. The the last season of Lucifer they had um mm. an episode that was all musical. They did that in Scrubs, they did it in Buffy the Vampire Slayer where they give a chance to just kind of go in a slightly different direction. So I think it's kind of it's kind of got the potential to come there and especially with um some of the Disney remakes. I mean, all the original Disney films had such a strong musical element where mm-hmm. the, the remakes are going, the Aladdin remake, for example, had still that strong musical element. So you can, you can get it. It's maybe not quite like what it was in the, in the forties, the fifties, the sixties, uh, but it, it's still, it's still got a grain. It's got a little something. Okay. If, if you had your choice to be any comic book character in any movie, who would it be? The Green Hornet. Ah, that's a good choice. <laughs> I thought he was so cool. Uh, Britt Reed, uh, played by the great Van Williams when I was a kid. Uh, I, I dug the the, the 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 little fedora and the mask and the green trench coat and having Cato drive him in the Black Beauty. Yeah, I, 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 I dug the, the Green Hornet, man. I uh, I watched that show. I watched it for Bruce Lee. He was he was he was the man. We all did. <laughs> <laughs> but you asked. To see. Yeah, I had to give you some. Oh yeah, you you that's a, that's a good choice because you got to go with those deep cuts. You can have some. Uh, you can have some fun with that. Um, yeah. So to to wrap things up, uh, for my listeners that want to pay attention to, first of all, uh, you you've got the the. The uh, Yellow Jacket is coming out here in November. Was it fourteenth? Is that right? Yes. Okay. Fourteenth. And uh, when is when is National Champions come out? Thanksgiving weekend. Thanksgiving. November twenty fourth. Ten days later. Fantastic. And if yeah. they want to pay attention to you and know what you're doing and where you're going to be next, is Instagram the best way to find you? I think so. Uh, Pretty Tony Winters uh, on Instagram. I'm Tony Winters on Facebook. As long as, you know, if you send me a note and say, hey, I saw you on um, every, every, everybody, everybody loves, loves pudding. pudding. Um, and, and I know you're not some crazy person uh, because I got hacked on Facebook. Oh. Oh, yeah, funny. I lost my Facebook and my Instagram. I had to start all over like a year ago. Oh. After, I lost 10 years of, anyway. Uh, yeah, so I'm Tony Winters on Facebook and I am Tony Winters 128 on Twitter. Nice. Well, and there's also my uh, my aforementioned uh, YouTube page, Tony right. Winters TV. Fantastic. And I, I, I respond to fans all the time there. Well, that's what we love to see, that that kind of connection. A lot of times uh, it feels like, uh, feels like the people that you admire that make the things that you love are sometimes very separated from you as, as a viewer. But uh, to see people that have that connection is just it's a wonderful thing, and I definitely appreciate it. And I appreciate you coming on to the show and talking with us. Man, this has been a joy. I just feel like I've been a, a, a chatty Kathy for the last hour, but I've enjoyed our conversation very, very much. I appreciate you. I, I hope to see you again, and you have something else coming out. You are always welcome. Open invitation. Thank you very much. Well, God bless you, and God bless your, your viewers, and uh, I hope to see you soon. <laughs>